we will remain standing for the reading of God's word on which the sermon is based. It's John 3, 16 to 21, and I would like to invite you to uh, read together verse 16 once I finish reading the whole verses. John 3, 16, 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hate the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light and it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let us now read together John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Friends, we've been uh, in, uh, looking at this series from the Gospel of John, Come and See Jesus. And we're going to continue to come and see him for who he is. And we have come to John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the New Testament, in fact, in the whole Bible. A lot of us have memorized that uh, verse if you have been Christian for a while. There are people who have tattooed uh, this verse on their arms, right? And Martin Luther aptly called this verse the Bible in miniature. So if you want to understand the whole Bible, you can look at it from the lens of this verse, John 3.16. It summarizes the whole gospel story. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It begins with God. For God so loved the world and ends with everlasting life. And everyone who believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. So it begins with God and ends with everlasting life. It begins with the one who had no beginning. It ends with that which has no ending, i.e. eternal life. Now, what is interesting is that uh, theologians have debated whether verse 16 to 21 were actually uttered by Jesus or are they reflections of the apostle of uh, uh, John? So if you remember last week, we look at the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And so the question is, when we read 16 to 21, are these the words of Jesus or are these the editorial comments made by the Apostle John. And I would like to side with uh, those scholars, like Mary Harris, who wrote an entire book based on this verse. So as you can see, this sermon can last for three hours, right? But uh, don't worry, we're not going to spend three hours on this one verse. But he wrote the whole book on this verse, and he said that this is perhaps uh, what John 
said rather than what Jesus said, but it does not make the text less authoritative in our lives just because it's not, it was not uh, Jesus who said this word. So these were perhaps the reflections um, of the apostle when he heard what Jesus said to Nicodemus. So I would like to get our attention to these uh, three things that I want to focus on. The first one is the insanity of God's love. The insanity of God's love. You know, friends, when we uh, read in the next slide, for God so loved the world. Now that's a radical, an extreme, a gracious uh, statement. And I want to uh, pay attention to the uh, word world. You know, our, our world there. The world um, in Greek is cosmos, as you may uh, have heard. But here is the question. Does the world in John 3.16 refer to the elect or the fallen humanity? Are this referring to the people who will be chosen to believe or the entire humanity, the fallen humanity? And the answer is perhaps the fallen humanity. And here is why. Cosmos means to adorn, to put in order. You know, this is the original Greek word from which we have the word in English, cosmetics. Um, I know a lot of you have cosmetics at home. You buy cosmetics on a regular basis. If you wake up this morning, you look um, in the mirror, you look at your face, and there's something that is out of order, right, when we wake up in the morning. What do you do? You put on some makeup. You put on uh, cosmetics so that you have some sort of order, right, to look presentable in public before you go to church. And we're all thankful for that, right? So cosmos refers to this moral order that is in willful rebellion against God. Cosmos refers to a value system that is anti-God. A value system that doesn't want to have anything to do with God. That's what the word world in John 3.16 refers to. So whenever John uses this word, Cosmos in his gospel, it almost always refers to this anti-God value system of fallen humanity. It's not about a population of uh, 8 billion people, but it's about a value system that men have designed that basically says, I want to live my life as if there is no God. Who exists. So there's a strong emphasis, in fact, in the whole scripture that the love of God is on that world that knowingly rebelled against him. The rebellious world that has lost itself apparently has drawn the compassion of God. Here is what uh, D.A. Carson wrote about this uh, word, the world. It refers more to the badness than to the bigness. God's love is to be admired, according to Apostle John in this verse, because it's extended not to a world that is so big, but to a world that is so bad. 
God's love was not given not uh, not so much to billions of people, but it was given to such wicked people, i.e., you and I. This love of God is insane, not so much because the world is so big, but because it is so bad. We as individuals and as a world are constantly turning our backs on God. C.S. Lewis says that there are only two groups of species in this world who kill members of the same species wholesale, rats and men. No other species in this world actually kill each other for, for entertainment, for sports, for expressions of um, rage and anger and so on. Only rats and men, the two species who kill each other. Look at what we've done in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and now Ukraine. Do you know there are currently 27 wars that are still ongoing? Around the world, we have killed 42 millions of our own number since World War II. So that's why, friends, it's so ex- extraordinary that God would set His love upon us, upon this wicked world, given all the things that we have done. How about us as individuals? Well, we also turn our backs on God when we say we believe Him, but we go on living our lives opposing the standards that God has given us. In fact, we don't even bother to find out what God's standards are in our dating lives, in our work lives, or family lives. In all those domains in our lives, we just live by our own standards. We just don't care with God's standards. But you know what? God so loves us nevertheless. God loves us said C.S. Lewis, not because we are lovable, but because he is love. God loves us not because he needs to receive, but because he delights to share, to give his love. There's a big difference in all that. So that's what the word the world means. And the second word that I want to uh, highlight here is the word love itself. The word love itself. Friends, I, I, I don't know if you have um, noticed uh, this question. Um, it, it usually comes up every now and then. When, when someone asks you, if, or if you read in a, in, a, in a magazine article or in a book, is God's love conditional or unconditional? Let me ask you, those of you who have been Christians for a while, how would you answer that? Do you think God's love is conditional or unconditional. If now we know that the world is such a wicked world, which has all this value system that is so anti-God, does that mean that God's love is unconditional? What about those verses that say, if you remain in my love, then I will remain in you, John 15. See, friends, we, we have this, this confusion as to whether or not God's love is conditional or unconditional. I want you to um, look at how this verse refers to a specific kind 
of love. But, but let me uh, give you a, a bigger picture first. You know, again, uh, dear Carson in his book, uh, this is a different book, Difficult Doctrines of the Love of God, um, said that there are five different expressions of God's love. Okay, in the next slide, I'll just run this through uh, quickly. The first one is the intra-Trinitarian love of God. So this is the love that is shared between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know, there are various verses that um, attest to this kind of love, this expression of love. The love that is eternal, right, among the three persons of the Trinity. That's the first expression of God's love. The second one is the providential love of God over all creation. He upholds, he sustains the creation, right? Up to today, and that's why we can enjoy the sun and the moon and the wind, that everything is in order because God sustains that. He loves everything that he created. And then there's the third one, God's particular effective selecting love toward his elect. Now this is what we usually mean when we say that God's love is actually quite specific only to those whom he chose to love. So we think of verses like, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Malachi 1, 2, 3. Or Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church in particular. He loves people whom he elected to be believers before the foundation of the world. This is the third expression of God's love. And the fourth one is God's professional or conditional love based on our obedience. Keep yourself in God's love, Jude chapter 2, verse 1. Or when Jesus commanded his disciples to remain in his love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just, uh, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. See, this is not an unconditional love. This is conditional love. If you love him, if you obey his commands, then you remain in his love and he remains in you. And then there's the fifth kind, which is the one that John 3.16 refers to, and that's the God's redeeming stance towards the fallen world. This is a reflection of God's heart. He loved the world, and even though the world is filled with wicked people, he wants everyone not to perish. This is what we mean when we say that God's love is unconditional. He loved the ungodly. He loved the rebellious wayward sons and daughters to be. The love he has spoken uh, uh, of is not that special love with which the father regards his own elect, the Christians, but that mighty compassion with which he regards the whole race of mankind. So the object is not merely the little flock with which he has given Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners without any exception. So friends, John 3.16 refers to the last one. It's this redeeming stance, this, this expression of compassion of God that he wants everyone in the world, including people like Hitler, Putin, and 
you can imagine all the evil men and women too in the whole wide world that he wants to be safe. Now you notice that that came in past tense, John 3.16, God so loved the world, which meant that he loved us before we were his children. That's in line with what Apostle Paul said in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, I think it's important to understand these different expressions of God's love so that we understand better how God loves us and God loves the world and God loves our neighbors who are not yet Christians, our colleagues and boss at, at work. If we're not aware of these five expressions of God's love, we would focus on one expression and then make that an absolute thing over everything else. If you focus on just God's electing love, number three there, you would become a hyper-Calvinist. If you just focus on God's conditional love, um, and that is is number four there, and that's, that's all you understand how God loves us, it's conditioned upon our obedience, you're going to be a moralist. You're going to be a religious, narrow-minded Christians. If you just focus on God's providential love, and that's number uh, two there, you're going to be a pantheist. That you, you think that God is in everything because God loves every single thing that he created. And that's not totally wrong, but it's, it's completely wrong at the same time. Right? So we need to understand which expression of God's love are we talking about. And John 3.16, focusing on that compassion of uh, um, God that he shows towards everyone that he created. He wants us to turn to him. So God's love is insane because he loves the wicked. He loves you and me. The second point I want, I want to um, make is the intensity. It's not only the insanity, but also the intensity of God's love. In the next slide, you see the, the word there, that he gave his only son. Now, the construction of the Greek sentence stresses the intensity of God's love. In Greek, this verse, the, the first half of the verse, says literally this, thus, for love God the world that the son, the only begotten son, he gave. So you see, the emphasis is on the son. The son, the only begotten son, he gave. He gave his only son, or in NIV version, which becomes the title of this sermon, he gave the, the one and only son. He gave his best. He gave his unique and loved son. Friends, that's the wonder of the gospel. God so loved this fallen world, and he gave his one and only son. Yes, God love all people regardless of race, but unlike what the Jews believe that God loved all children of Israel and only the Israelites' children, God loves the fallen humanity. But note that these verses actually teach both the universality and the particularity of God's love. 
Now, I said this uh, earlier, the most famous uh, verse in the whole Bible is perhaps John 3.16, but it's also the most distorted verse in the whole Bible. Because modern people always think that John 3.16 says, God loved the world that he gave Christ and saves everybody in the world. Because he sent his one and only son, then everybody in the world will be saved. Our culture tells us that if God were really loving, instead of just sending one savior, God should have sent us five saviors, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and Marcus Aurelius. Or you can change them with any other name you would uh, love and worship. We want to have options like we do with our streaming service, Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime, and so on. We want these options when it comes to God so that everybody can believe their own religion for their salvation. We want to make God an inclusive God, an equal opportunity God. But that's not what the text says. Modern people say that if God only provides one way of salvation, one savior, then God doesn't really love the world. They get angry when they hear there's only one way to salvation. The question is not why is there only one way. The question is why should there be one way at all? Friends, we, we need to understand here, the intensity of God's love is shown towards the people who are already condemned. The people who have turned their backs on God. We are already condemned. In the next slide, if you um, uh, flick to the next slide, please, you see verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already. So we are condemned people. Jesus came into an already condemned world to save some. He did not enter a neutral world to save some and then condemn others, but he came to a condemned world with people who were so wicked, who kept rebelling against him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, but in order that he, the world might be saved through him and through him alone, right? Calvin observed this verse, whenever our sins press us, whenever Satan would drive us to despair, we ought to hold out this shield that God is unwilling and we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to the salvation of the world. So the question, why should there be one way of salvation at all if we deserve the wrath of God, if we deserve to be condemned? The answer is because God loved the world enough to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ. The depth of his love is displayed by giving us Christ, whose name is not even worthy to be mentioned in the same breath with that of Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or anybody else. They are a million miles away in terms of the difference with uh, Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten son. Now, Jehovah Witness thought that because of this word, the only begotten son, 
Jehovah Witness, those who believe in their teaching always say that Jesus Christ is a created being. But the word monogenes, mono means alone, genos mean, means birth, does not mean that Christ was created, but rather the word only begotten son in King James Version means he is unique, he's one of a kind, one and only. I don't know if you know uh, families or if you yourselves has only one child. If you only have one child, especially in the old days, right, in ancient culture, that child is so precious because everything would hang on this single heir. The loss of an only child would be a massive tragedy for the family. And we tend to spoil this only child in the family. Now, Jesus was uniquely God's son by nature, meaning that he has the very nature of God. That was why when the Jewish, uh, Jewish leaders in Jesus' day thought that Jesus was committing uh, blasphemy because he was claiming to be the son of God. John 3.16 reminds us that this glorious one-of-a-kind son whom the Father gives so that everyone who believes in him might have life, eternal life. So friends, the intensity of God's love lies in the fact that he gave his one and only son. And the last point, not only we see the insanity of God's love, the intensity of God's love, but also the intentionality of God's love. What is the purpose of God sending his son to the world? Here is the purpose. The last part of verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you see the contrast there, the perish and eternal life. These are the outcomes of believing or ignoring Christ Jesus. Every soul of man will spend eternity either in a state of spiritual death or spiritual life based on whether they receive or reject the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Somebody put it like this, natural life came by God's breath, but eternal life comes by Christ's death. And in verse 19, in the next um, slide, we're going to see kind of the second purpose why God sent his one and only son. This is a judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So according to this verse, God sent his son to expose our sins. Jesus shines a light on our sins, exposes, exposing them. But we sinners, we love our sins. It's not that we do not know, we do not have enough information about Jesus that we reject him, but we just don't want our sins to be exposed. That's why we run away from Jesus. We ignore him. It's not about we lack the basic faculties of reason. It's not about misunderstanding the Bible, but we just prefer moral darkness. You see why men do not come to Christ? They do not want to give up their sins. The dislike of Christ is caused by a love 
of sins. Because if you love your sins, you cannot be at the same time loving the Savior. The Greek philosopher Plato once wrote this, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. You know, little children, they usually don't want to go into a room that is completely dark because it frightens them. But Plato then wrote, the real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. Recently, I uh, read a book that I'm supposed to um, endorse. A friend of mine sent me a copy of that first manuscript in English, a CEO of a um, company um, based in the US. And he wrote this, how many times have you silently told yourself, I'm so glad nobody else knows what I'm thinking. I'm so glad nobody knows, nobody in the world, no, not even people who are so close to me knows what I have in this space, knows what I'm thinking. And I'm glad because of that. Imagine if people know what I have in mind. So scary, isn't it? But friends, God knows. There's nothing we can hide from him. You are only as sick as your secrets. The problems that we grow in the dark will only be bigger and bigger, but when they are exposed to the light of truth, they shrink. So I want to invite you this morning to take off your mask and stop pretending that you are perfect and walk into freedom because that's why God has sent his one and only son to cover your sins, to cover your shame, to get out of that moral darkness and come to his light. So again, only two options, perish or eternal life. There is no third option. If you remember last week, Nicodemus, Jesus talked to him, and the lesson that we learned, that everyone, good or bad, must be saved, must be born again. Nicodemus was this exemplary, Religious authority, respected scholar, wealthy, formidable public figure. He got everything people want to have. But Jesus said to him, you must be born again. You must be safe. On the other hand, there are broken people, people with, with messed up life. I'm not just talking about drug addicts and alcoholics and inmates, but any one of us with Secrets in our lives, this moral darkness that we do not want everyone else to know. Perhaps that's in our space um, up here, in our minds. We feel worthless because of our moral failures. And guess what? Because Jesus has come, not only you get second chances, not only you get a new moral structure, not only you get to turn a new, over a new leaf, but you would be born again. You would be saved by Jesus. You see what the good news is here, friends? No matter how good you are, no matter how decent you are, you must be born again, like Nicodemus. But on the other hand, it also means no matter how messed up you are, no matter how broken you are, you can be born again. You can be saved. God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us in this whole wide world to love. 
In fact, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do that to make God love you less. Jesus Christ knows the worst about you, friends. And yet, he's the one who loves you the most, wrote A.W. Tozer. And as the song we are about to sing after this, our God is indeed a good and gracious king. You can approach his throne of glory, bringing nothing in your hands, absolutely nothing, except the promise of acceptance from that good and gracious king. So would you come to him in repentance and faith for the first time or for a hundredth time because he has come to the world to save us? Let us pray.